If, if you have a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 21. That's where we're going to be at. Uh, many of you know, unless you're a visitor, by the way, welcome. Um, you are visiting in our church right as we're in the middle of a series through the book of Acts. And we'll be in Acts chapter 21. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Last week, Larry was preaching on Paul and preaching about how Paul's encounter with the uh, elders from Ephesus on the shores of Miletus uh, was really the special tender moment where he, where Paul was giving the elders some, some last instructions, but they were also sharing a very tear-filled farewell. It was a very tender moment you know, in the life of Paul, and they were weeping and hugging each other, and it, it was very special. But Paul was headed to Jerusalem. That was why they were so sad. He was leaving. He knew that going to Jerusalem was going to be a dangerous endeavor. So he um, just wanted to let these, these men know that that was what was happening. And uh, they knew that it was going to be costly. It may even cost Paul his life. And so he is heading to Jerusalem. Danger awaits. I'm going to pick this up in chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. So this is Paul venturing towards Jerusalem. And this is Luke writing. He says, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we, uh, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyr. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. This is the first leg of Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Now, as many of you know, that the way I like to preach is read some stuff, say some stuff, read some stuff, say some stuff, and that pattern kind of goes on. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help me say the right stuff. God, this is your word. This is what you have left for us as a deposit of a revelation of you and your work in this world. So God, I stand before this word trembling because I want to be accurate. And so God, would you help me? And God, would you help us as a church who are sitting under this word to be transformed by it and to be equipped through it, to be challenged by it, to be encouraged in it. And God, whatever you teach us, we'll be so thankful because we know that you're speaking, you're teaching, you're leading, you're guiding, and for that we are so grateful. So be with our time together, I pray, for our joy, for your glory. Amen. So why did Paul want to go to Jerusalem in the first place? Well, we pick it up in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders about why he wants to go to Jerusalem in the first place. There's really two reasons. Firstly, it's this. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. The word constrained means you have this overwhelming emotional kind of obligation. I've got to do this. And so Paul feels in his own soul, I have to go to Jerusalem. I feel this, this absolute compulsion. I, I have to do this. So that's one reason. The Holy Spirit is telling him to go. And there's a second reason. He wanted to bring relief to the church in Jerusalem. Now at this time, there was a famine in Jerusalem. 
And a lot of the saints, a lot of the church in Jerusalem, was, they were really struggling. They didn't have the finances to pay for the food. They didn't have food because obviously there was a famine. It was a very difficult time. What's really interesting is in Acts about 18, 19, 20, we know that Paul spent about three years in the city of Ephesus. And from the city of Ephesus, he wrote three letters of correspondence. They're in our New Testament called First and Second Corinthians and Romans. So as you read First and Second Corinthians and Romans, you have to understand that it, it's, it's the time in which Paul was spending in, in Ephesus thinking through the implications of the gospel and what it means for him as an apostle and missionary. So it's, it's what he was thinking before he headed out for his journey to Jerusalem. And we pick it up in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 about this, this relief, this famine relief. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 through 3. There was a, a, a severe famine. Here's what Paul wanted to do about it. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, right after Paul talks about the resurrection, it's the most logical thing that follows the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Namely, that we need to be generous. We're all going to die someday, and we're not taking our junk with us. So in the meantime, let's be as generous as possible. That's logically how it flows. Jesus rose from the dead. Booyah, let's be generous. Then Paul writes in Romans 15. Remember, this is another letter just uh, before he took off to go to Jerusalem. He says this in uh, Romans 15, verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, which is uh, the region of where Philippi is, the, the Philippian church. You can read about that in Philippians 4, about the generosity there. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, beautiful depiction of generosity. For Macedonia and Achaia, which is 1 Corinthians or the church in Corinth, they have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So what Paul wants to do is go to Jerusalem for two main reasons. One, he feels the Holy Spirit compelling him to go. I feel like I have to do this. Secondly, because he knows the saints in Jerusalem are suffering and they need relief. It's very similar to what our church is doing with the church in Santa Rosa. You see what's happening here. We're doing some biblical stuff. That's awesome. But we also see something very interesting. Paul is warned about his trip to Jerusalem. Pick it up in uh, verse 4 of chapter 21 in Acts. He says, And having sought out the disciples, we, and that's Paul and his travel companions, including the author of this, Luke, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. That's important. The Spirit was telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, or so it seemed. Pick it up in verse 7. So when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Remember who the seven are. That's from Acts chapter 6, when they instituted the office of deacons um, in order to minister to the, the physical needs of the saints in Jerusalem. So he was a part of that. And they stayed with him, verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So for seven days, Paul's hanging out with the disciples in Tyre, and they're telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. And they're doing so through the Spirit. Then we pick it up in verses 7 through 14. Paul arrives in Caesarea. He's once again in Philip's house, hanging out with his four unmarried prophesying daughters. Agabus, who is this prophet, comes in and tells Paul through the Spirit once again that he is going to suffer. He takes, I just imagine such a weird thing. We can't do this in today's culture, but he lifts Paul's shirt and takes his belt off and then wraps his feet and hands together and then lays on the floor. Paul, this is going to happen to you. And everyone's like, oh. you know, it's, it's a weird thing. You don't do that at dinner parties usually. But anyways, <laughs> so, so they're hanging out at this place and, and, and they're being warned. Paul's being warned. Your, your trip to Jerusalem is incredibly dangerous. And they're actually saying, I don't know if it's good for you to go. Remember that in verse 4? I don't, I don't know if you should go. Verse 12, we urged him not to go. And yet Paul, in the midst of so much weeping and tears, he insists on going anyway. Look, they're, they're like, hey, please don't go, please don't go, please don't go. Verse 5 through 6, Paul heads to the beach where the ship is docked, and he kneels down and he begins to pray and say goodbye. And they're weeping, why won't you stay? And he's like, i got a ship to catch, dude. Then you pick it up in verse 13. Paul, and you remember also the shore there in Miletus where he's sitting there crying and weeping. They're kissing each other and hugging. They're like, we're so sad. And here's Paul's response to all this. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You see what's happening? The Christians together are just compelling. They're, they're trying to compel Paul to not go to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit has revealed to them that it is going to be dangerous and it's not going to go well. But Paul says, you know what? What are you guys doing? What's wrong with you? Weeping and breaking my heart like this. I have a mission I have to accomplish. And so they say, well, all right, let the will of the Lord be done. You know what's really interesting about that is I was thinking about this scenario. I started to think to myself, wait a minute. I'm about to have to preach this in front of so many people. A question came to my mind. Was Paul being disobedient? So, so let me ask you a couple questions. You, you're going to have to think now. And I know, hmm. This early in the morning at church, it's hard to think. But I, I'm going to challenge you. Think with me. Think with me. Let me ask you this question. Why was Paul so determined to go to Jerusalem? Because the Spirit was urging him, you got to go. Let me ask this other question. Who was it that revealed the danger of Paul's journey to Jerusalem to the church? The Spirit. Now, if we're good thinking people, we'll say, isn't that a contradiction? Paul, you need to go to Jerusalem. Paul, it's really dangerous. And then the church says, maybe you shouldn't go. Do you see what's happening? So as I was, I was thinking and praying through this, I'm thinking to myself, did, did Paul, was Paul disobedient or was he obedient? Was he being obedient to the first call to go to Jerusalem or was he being disobedient to the church's recommendation? Like, what's going on here? 
And I started to realize our answer is determined by what we value most. Let me, let me show you an example from Mark chapter 8. This is when Jesus reveals to his disciples that something terrible is about to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. He says this in Mark chapter 8 verse 31. Jesus began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, in case we don't understand what rebuke is, that means to correct. So here's Peter listening. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And he said it plainly. And Peter looks at the disciples. <clears throat> I got it, boys. Wraps his arm around Jesus, walks him off to the side and goes, well, here's the thing. That's not going to happen. I think you got that one wrong. Let, let, me, let me help you out, Jesus. <laughs> okay, so verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, I imagine that Peter has his arm around Jesus and they're having a little powwow and Jesus looks over, the, you know, they're, they're uh, together and he looks over at the disciples, looks at Peter, and then turns squarely and looks at Peter and here's what he says. Get behind me, Satan. Oh, <laughs> Because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What? So here's what's happening. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to suffer. He tells them, I'm going to suffer. I know it ahead of time. And there's two possible responses. A response which is man-centered and a response that is God-centered. God-centered response would be, you're dying for the sins of the world and you're going to rise victoriously and that's the beginning of the new creation. Hallelujah. And then the man-centered response is, no, 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 no. You're not going to die. That's no good. What can that accomplish? And that is man-centered satanic thinking from the lips of Jesus. Whoa. You see, so we have to ask the question, if Paul is obedient or disobedient, how do we make the decision? And I think it comes down to how we answer this question. What do you value most, the gospel or being comfortable? Here's what I mean. If we value the gospel, then what happened to Paul was he was simply being informed by the Spirit about what awaits so in Acts 19, Paul says, the Spirit is compelling me to go. Acts 20, the Spirit has testified to me that I have to go. And I know I'm going to suffer there. It's going to be hard. I know that. The Spirit told me that. And then when he gets to tear, everyone's saying, hey, through the Spirit, we're telling you not to go. And Paul's hearing, through the Spirit, you're telling me it's going to be dangerous. I already know that. Then he gets to Caesarea, and the church gets together, and they're like, oh. they're looking at Agabus, rolling around in the fetal position with a belt around his hands and feet, and they're going, oh. You shouldn't go to Jerusalem. This is going to happen to you. And he goes, I know that. I know that. And in Paul's mind, he's saying, it's worth it. That's okay. God told me this is going to happen. And you know what? Jesus did the same thing for you and I. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says something which is really important for us to understand. He looks at Christians and he says, in this world, you will have much tribulation or suffering and affliction. You will have it which is sobering. But then Jesus finishes his statement by saying, but fear not, I've overcome the world. And you're going, 
yeah, baby. <laughs> it's going to be tough, but you know what? Jesus gets the last word. I like that. What God is doing is telling us ahead of time. Or as Jesus said, it's called counting the cost. You better go into this knowing ahead of time what's in store for you. You see, being a Christian isn't simply just responding to somebody's Facebook friend request. Hey, you want to be a buddy with Jesus? Sure. Yay. <laughs> we, we do remember when Jesus says this, uh, take up your cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself. Or when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. This is not a, a Facebook friend request, folks. This is a bid to come and die. Sobering. Very sobering. But if we value the gospel and we value the kingdom of God and we value the fact that Jesus is reconciling people to himself through the shed blood of his, of his crucifixion and his resurrection, if we value the fact that God is overwhelmingly loving to sinners because while they were sinners, he died for us, if we value that, then when we look at suffering and the potential conflict and affliction that may come to us, we will look at it and not shy away. We will boldly walk forward and say, this is worth it. To see sinners reconciled to God. So that's option number one, God-centered response. Option number two is a man-centered response, which then we would conclude, actually, I think Paul was disobedient. He should have listened to the warning. The warning was, don't go. It's going to be dangerous. Or in other words, Paul, if you go there, it won't be comfortable. And so for you and I, this is hard to hear, but if we value comfort and being comfortable above the gospel, we will think that gospel ministry that produces suffering and hardship, it's not worth it. Because our chief and primary value is comfortability. Let me, let me help you out with this. And by the way, I didn't sleep very well last night because I knew I had to talk about this. And I was finding ways to cut this out of the sermon, honestly, because it's like, man, I'm preaching to myself in a lot of ways. So hang with me. Have you noticed that the, one of the core values of our culture today is pain avoidance? Have you, met, have, have you, have you noticed this? A lot of what advertisements for, for, you know, like pharmaceutical companies, like avoid pain. We, we don't want pain. Unless it's because, you know, you're working out a lot. But have you noticed that we've developed an appetite in our culture for making sure that we are comfortable, that we have something easy and simple? Um, how about this? Have, have you heard this before? Um, I've heard people in our culture say, love, love shouldn't be this hard. Or in other words, marriage shouldn't be this difficult. I mean, it's love. It should be easy. And I'm thinking to myself, what, what world are you coming from? Love is incredibly difficult because the object of your love is usually a sinner. And I don't know about you, but marriage, you willingly married someone who you knew was a sinner. It was going to be difficult from day one. And I get young adults a lot. They're like, man, I didn't think marriage would be like this. I'm like, what did you think it was? I don't know. And I think that they imagine that they'll just walk around the house naked doing, doing housework. And it would just be like <laughs> vacations. And it would be amazing. And, and the reality sets in, no, marriages work because you're a sinner and they're a sinner. And together you live in a house. And if God gives you children, you've now just welcomed more sinners into your family. 
but we have, but we have it in our culture. Parents, you're probably sitting with your kids. You're like, shh. <laughs> Let them hear it. They're sinners. All right. Or, or think about this. Just think about the last week of your life. How many advertisements have you heard or seen that had the words simple, quick, easy? Think about that. Why do advertisers try to entice us to their product with those words? Or, or think about this. What is the basic incentive of every life hack that is made available to you on Pinterest? Is it not to make your life simple and easy and comfortable until you try to actually do what you see on the picture? Or think about this, what is the basic premise of every piece of self-help advice or every wisdom that comes from what is called life coaching? Is not the goal of those things to help you simplify, to come with a quicker solution, to make it easier, and to get you to be more comfortable? Or think about it like this, and this is most sobering of all. How often do we associate the will of God with what is the most pain-free and comfortable. As a young adult pastor, I used to have young adults tell me all the time, I think I should date this person. I go, why? I don't know. It's just, it's just so, so easy to be with them. What? Do they love Jesus? Oh, I don't know. What? Do you know what their favorite color is? Yeah, it's blue. What? <laughs> Do you understand that, that God's will for who you marry isn't based on trivia? Just because you can win a trivia game about what you know about this person doesn't mean that you're supposed to be married to them. Don't you understand that marriage is built on more than what is trivial? Oh. Well, if God doesn't want me to do it, why doesn't he stop me? Oh, gosh. <laughs> or, or I'll get the young adult say, I think I'm supposed to go to this college, or I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to do this or that. And I, and I hear it too in pastoral counseling. I think this is what I should do. Why? Well, it's just, it just seems easier that way. What? Since when did we as Christians adopt the mindset that we are like water, where we follow the path of least resistance? You get that? That's, that's a challenge. You see, if we are addicted to comfortability, then we may look at Paul's life and say, man, this guy got it wrong. He should not have gone to Jerusalem. It's just not safe there. How many decisions do we make as parents based on, number one, safety? We do know safety is a mirage, right? I mean, we can take precautions, but ultimately you're not in control. I don't care how many airbags you have in your Subaru, and I don't care how many restraints you have for your child. If you're on the bypass and somebody cuts you off and it's rainy, you may be toast. You, you get that, right? Safety is a mirage, and, and we're addicted to it. Think about it like this. Maybe, maybe you disagree with me, and that's okay to be wrong. Um, <laughs> so, but, but think about it like this. How many sermons have you heard or how many prayer requests have you heard where Christians are either being exhorted and challenged or they're, being, they're asking for you to pray that they would come out of their comfort zone? Brothers and sisters, why do we even have that phrase in our vocabulary if intuitively we as Christians know that we ought not to be comfortable? The fact that we have a phrase, comfort zone, and we're praying to get out of it, 
indicates that being comfortable might be sinful. Why else pray about it? Yikes. I want to take you real quickly through some scripture to show how the spirit and suffering sometimes go hand in hand. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. This is right after Jesus gets baptized. It says this in verse 1. And Jesus, who's full of the Holy Spirit, returned from, from the Jordan, which is the river where he got baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. You see, some people think if they're filled with the Holy Spirit, like feeling of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that I won't suffer and my life won't be difficult. I'm going, where are you getting that? You ain't getting it from the Bible. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, God didn't do the tempting, but God led him to the tempting. Not only that, but if you remember Acts chapter 7, a man named Stephen, who in verse 55 is said to be full of the Spirit. Do you remember what happened to Stephen? He got stoned. In verse 60, it says, as he was being stoned, he fell to his knees. He cried out aloud, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep, he died. Brothers and sisters, being full of the Spirit doesn't mean your life is going to be easy and comfortable. It still may mean your brains are going to get bashed in. Or how about Acts 16 where Paul is traveling with his companions and, and through verses 6 through 9, we see where the Spirit of Jesus prevents Paul from going to a place called Bithynia. And he receives this vision in, in, in the night where Jesus tells our where Jesus gives him a vision that a man in Macedonia says, come and help me. So Paul goes to Macedonia, which is a place called Philippi. And you remember what happened to Paul in Philippi? Jesus was telling him, go, 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 go. Well, he shows up in Philippi, preaches the gospel, then gets beaten with rods, and then gets imprisoned. And God told him to go do that. And we remember Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters. I'm telling you, memorize this if it's possible. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into, into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see that great promise? We have, we have sonship and daughtership with, with, with God through Christ. We have the spirit where we get to cry to God, you're my daddy. For the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Wow. That's usually where people stop reading. Look at the rest of the sentence, though. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Then Paul makes this statement, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, when we have the Spirit, it is not our immunization against affliction and suffering. It may be the very thing that brings it about. The Spirit has testified to us that if you follow Jesus, a cross is involved. That's sobering. And many people will say, well, forget this. I'm out of here. I need easy Christianity. Remember, easy Christianity is no Christianity. There's no such thing. But we are comforted. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is right before he goes to 
Jerusalem. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And this is what God does. He comforts us in all our affliction. For what purpose? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. How? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And look at verse 5. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And Paul makes this great conclusion. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. One reason why we experience suffering is so we can get to the end of ourselves and we can begin to rely upon God. And by the way, God is not some impotent dude who's like, oh, shucks, I wish I could help you. Remember, God raises dead people to life, right? That's amazing. That means no matter what I'm facing, I, I don't have to necessarily worry uh, ultimately about, about my life because I'm getting raised. That makes you bold. That makes you courageous. And that makes you want to be a faithful witness. So what I said from the beginning is this is, I didn't say this from the beginning probably, I don't know. We are sent to be witnesses of the gospel of God's grace by trusting the work of the Spirit. Maybe the Spirit's work in our lives is not to make us comfortable, but to provide us with the comfort in the midst of our suffering. And as good Americans, that's a paradigm shift for us. You mean to tell me, like, my, my whole life as an American Christian is not meant to be safe and easy and simple and all? Perhaps not, at least biblically. So, so Paul goes to Jerusalem because he was disobedient, because he, for the sake of the gospel, considered that to be his greatest value and treasure. That's why he says, it is, it is gain to die. So he's obedient, and he goes to Jerusalem, and it goes exactly as expected. Now, I don't have enough time to go through all of this, but I want to point out a couple things for us. They got ready, and they left in verse 15. In verse 17, they arrive into the city, and the brothers there, they gladly welcome Paul. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders, they were present. In verse 19, after greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You see what Paul did there? Hey, guys, I'm back. I haven't seen you in five years, but here I am. And they're like, hey. He doesn't tell them, look at all the stuff I did. Look at all the churches I planted. Look at all the people who are my people. He doesn't say any of that. He recounts what God has done through him. And they hear it and they rejoice. They glorify God because of what happens, verse 20. But then something goes wrong. You see, some of the Jewish Christians who were there, they were hearing rumors about Paul. We pick it up in verse 20. He says, you see, brothers, uh, James is talking to uh, Paul. You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, there's the rumor, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their, our customs. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, was all about answering the question, does a Gentile need to become a Jew in order to be saved? And the answer emphatically is no. But people are hearing rumors that Paul is teaching 
If you are a Jew, you must become a Gentile in order to be saved. And they're going, something's got to happen. What, what are we supposed to do with this? Verse 22, what is then to be done? They certainly will hear that you have come. So then he says, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Now, I have to stop there and just say, this isn't, this isn't a salvation issue. This is a cultural issue. In other words, what the church in Jerusalem is saying is, Paul, you need to demonstrate to the Jewish people that you haven't abandoned your heritage. And we have a lot of Filipinos in our church, and they offer me lumpia from time to time, and I am infinitely grateful. I love lumpia. But it would be something like this. A Filipino child becomes a Christian, comes back and says, my church told me I have to forsake lumpia and all other Filipino cuisine in order to be a Christian. And we'd go, what's wrong with you, child? What is wrong with you? You don't have to do that to be a Christian. You don't have to reject your heritage. You don't have to reject your culture to be a Christian. And that's the issue. So Paul does exactly what they request. Verse 26, Paul took them in. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So Paul does it. He takes their recommendation and he says, that's good. Now, the reason why Paul does this is because of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, which is the letter he wrote right before he went to Jerusalem. Remember that? Here's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9. It says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, so that I might share with them in its blessings. You see, Paul's mindset here, as long as it isn't a salvation issue, which brings into question the fundamentals of the gospel, I'm willing to do it. When we used to go to Jamaica as a young adult ministry, I was often asked to preach in the churches. And they always told me, make sure you bring your tie and everything. And so I would have to preach in tie and everything. They preferred a jacket, but I didn't own one at the time. And so I was like, tie is all you get. And I would show up preaching in a tie and very nice clothes, even though it was about 95 degrees with 100% humidity. And I sweat through everything. And I did it because I didn't want to offend these folks. Now, some of you are probably thinking, why don't you do that here at Golden Hills? Um, <laughs> and I'm sure Larry would be very happy about me wearing a tie. But the, the reality is this. My choice to wear a tie or not wear a tie is not ultimately a salvation issue. It's not the center of the gospel. And if we ever make wearing a tie or not wearing a tie the center of the gospel and, and raise it to a level of, like, infinite importance, something's wrong with our hearts if we do that. And so we can't do that. And so Paul is realizing, like, I'll go, my limit is I can't compromise the gospel, but I'll, but I'll go up there and, and, and I'll have some cultural things that I'll, I'll be willing to do. That's fine. But he doesn't compromise the gospel, which is a really, really important thing. I wish we could unpack that more. And then everything goes haywire. This is great. I mean, it's deadly serious. All right, verse 27. 
When the seven days were almost complete, the Jews from Asia, so these are not Christians, these are Jews, unbelieving, uh, so, so they believe in God, but they're not Christians. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, Jews from Asia means they're probably from Ephesus. Remember Paul spent three years in Ephesus? Remember he was preaching in the synagogues and they booted him out? Then he rented the hall of Tyrannus and began to preach there even more. And it says in, in Luke 19 that he, he preached both to Jews and to Greeks. And Trophimus was an Ephesian. So they probably saw Trophimus and they're like, oh, I know you. You used to live down the street from my mom. And, th and then they knew Paul because he was a nuisance. And they see them together and they're like, okay, let's get rid of this chunk. The whole city was stirred up. The people ran together, verse 30. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, which is the leader of the cohort of the, of the Roman army, that all of Jerusalem was in confusion. So he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. You know what that's like if you've ever been a child, and many of you have. When your mom or dad walks in the room, when you're in the midst of not doing what you're supposed to do, you stop, right? Huh, what? I didn't do it. It's that kind of thing. They're like, uh-oh. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he, being the tribune, could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, when Paul came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now, let's not get lost in the details, but let's remember something. Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be crucified there. When he stood before Pontius Pilate and the mob of people were there shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Do you remember what they also shouted? Away with this man. So here's Paul going to Jerusalem, understanding that he's about to suffer for the name of Christ. He stands before uh, the Roman ruler at the time in front of the whole mob and they're shouting, let's get rid of this man. Away with him. Do you see this, the, this, the similarity there? We're supposed to see that similarity there as, as Bible readers. Oh, my goodness. Paul is experiencing the same kind of suffering as Jesus. Yes, he is. And if you are a Christian in Christ, you can expect it too. Whoa. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and so he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the guy says, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out of the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from, this, from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So this is mistaken identity. They thought Paul was this unruly guy, and he wasn't. And so he stands there asking if he can give his testimony to the people. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people, and there was a great hush. Something like this. He stands on the steps. Say something. Hush. And he addresses them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, 
Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. They leaned in. Oh, man, this, wait a minute. I thought this is the guy that abandoned all of our Jewish heritage. He's speaking Hebrew? I got, I got to listen to this guy. You see what Paul's doing? He's building common ground. He's literally speaking their language. So they listen in. And then Paul recounts his testimony. In verses 3 through 5, he recounts how he encountered Jesus, or excuse me, how, how he was a persecutor of Jesus in the church, how he stood there while Stephen was being stoned to death. In verses 6 through 11, Paul recounts how he encountered Jesus. He says this, there was a great light. In verse 7, I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, who are you, Lord? And then he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me. And standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and what you have heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Ananias shares with him the gospel that through Jesus Christ, through the crucifixion of Jesus, those who are sinners can be made new again. They can be forgiven. And he is baptized, which means he identifies with Jesus, believing in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of the new creation. He's a Christian. Then he returns to Jerusalem, and this is more of Paul's testimony. And Paul, and Paul was told by God, you can't stay here. Something bad's going to happen to you. In verse 20, or excuse me, verse 21, he gets to the, the conclusion of his testimony. He says, and God said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, up to that point, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. And think about this for a second. He's giving his testimony. He talks about Jesus of, of Nazareth, the resurrection, crucifixion, sin. He's talking about encountering a risen Jesus. All this, and nobody interrupts him or says a word. They're like, oh, okay, intriguing, interesting. Don't know how that works. Interesting. But the moment he says, and God has sent me as a messenger to the Gentiles, they lose it. Jewish nationalism takes over and they begin to shout Paul down. You better shut your mouth, Paul. There's no way that God wants to save Gentiles. They're despicable. They're disgusting. And Paul, remember, he wrote Ephesians 2. <laughs> he knows that it is the blood of Jesus that has brought about peace. 
He knows by the blood of Jesus and by the death of Jesus on the cross that the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles has been broken down. It is Paul who knows that Jesus has ransomed by his blood people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every people group so that God can make them a kingdom and be priests to serve our God forever. Paul knows that God's gospel goes out to all people. And that's important for us as Christians to know because some of us like to decide ahead of time who's worthy of the gospel and who isn't. We should never be like that. And they lose it. They forget that the gospel is always meant to be something that is for everyone, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender, regardless of your socioeconomic background. It's a beckoning and a calling of God. Come, be reconciled to your maker. Come. I'm out of time, so I need to skip ahead. You know, there's some great promises in Scripture. i got to end with this. There's some great promises I can't leave you here without. Remember, we are witnesses called to go and share the gospel of God's grace by trusting the work of the Spirit. But here's some promises you have to hear. Let's start in Luke 12. This is Jesus. He says, when they bring you Christians before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about, what, about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. And these are precious promises because as we speak the gospel, don't we get sweaty and nervous? We're like, I don't know what to say. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're like, this is awkward. I don't and Jesus said, don't, don't be anxious about that. Why? Verse 12, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, what you ought to say. It's in the moment your mouth starts opening and words start coming out that you are being taught. You're not taught ahead of time. You don't get preempted with words. You get words in the moment. And that's why people get worried. I don't know what to say. Have you said anything? Start saying stuff. See what happens. Like, well, that's what I'm afraid of. No, you're not trusting the promises of God. He said, as soon as you start opening your mouth, I'll provide you with the words. Do you trust that promise? Okay, next promise. Ooh, this is getting good. Luke 21. This is Jesus saying, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Brother and sister, do you realize that sometimes the hardest, most painful affliction and suffering is our opportunity to bear witness? Not our opportunity to avoid it. Wow, verse 14, but look at this. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. Isn't that a beautiful truth? I know a lot of people that are like, oh, I've got to get apologetics books, and I'm going to read these apologetic books, and I'm going to get the boom, the argument. So when my neighbor says, oh, I'll just say, and then he'll be done and I'll win. <laughs> it's like, no, stop that. Instead of trying to win arguments, instead of trying to have a dialogue, don't, don't settle it in your mind what you're going to say ahead of time, some theoretical conversation. Have an actual conversation and let it be filled with love. Shocking, I know, but it's what we should do. Why? Verse 15, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Do you believe that promise? When you open your mouth, you'll be given words. But what if I don't want to? God's going to give you a mouth. But what if I don't know how to answer? He's going to give you wisdom. How? John 14, Jesus says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. John 15, 
But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. How are you given wisdom? How are you given a mouth? How are you given words? How are you given boldness? How are you given courage? Through the Spirit. And you've been promised him that if you are a Christian and you've trusted that Jesus is enough, you have been given a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance to come, the Holy Spirit, who empowers you, equips you, emboldens you, grants you wisdom, remembrance, and strength, and a mouth, and words, and all this kind of stuff. The question is, do you trust those promises? Do you trust them? We are sent to be witnesses of the gospel of God's grace by trusting the work of the Spirit. I'm out of time, so God, help us. God, you have to help us with this. God, you've given us these promises. This is your word. You spoke it. And so you guarantee that it will be true. So God, would you grant us in our own hearts a, willing, a willingness to pray and to trust you. God, thank you so much for the spirit of God. Thank you so much that you granted us the spirit according to 1 Timothy 1. That is not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of boldness, of self-control, and of power. That's what we have access to. So God, help us to know that. Help us to be a church that is filled with the Spirit. Not because we do wacky stuff, but because we share the gospel. So God, let us go from here in your power and your strength, for your glory, for our joy. Amen.